0: We will get back to Leslie and Ron of Parks and Rec in a few minutes. Uh, We've been exploring uh, what it means to live in Graceland, and it's hard to understand grace because we don't live in Graceland, we live in what we would call the real world. And in the real world, there's not a lot of grace. We don't show a lot of grace, we don't seem to get a lot of grace, things don't seem to work like grace. We live in a world where actions have consequences, and there's always strings attached. Um, People hold grudges, They, they look for payback. That's the world we live in. And so the idea of grace, it just becomes this conundrum. A conundrum is something that we think we should have figured out, but it always continues to confuse us. And every time we think we got it, there's another twist to it that just kind of leaves us going, ah, oh, it seems to work, but then what about this over here? It kind of keeps coming back. And uh, the other thing about grace is it, it's required because of sin. Now when it comes to sin, sin is anything we, we you know, that, that God would say is wrong. What's interesting about sin is that regardless of the religion you look at around the world, there's a general consensus about most things that are wrong, if you will. Uh, in other words, it doesn't matter what religion you go to or look at, most would say honor the golden rule, don't kill somebody, you shouldn't lie, uh, you should keep your promises, um, be generous with your possessions, uh, things like that. They, they have a general consensus that Uh, doing these things makes for a better society and a better world. So what I find odd is most people in the world and most religions teach this, that this is the way we ought to live and that a lot of our problems come from the fact that we don't do these things. Yet, universally, all of us continue to do those things. Why? Why is it that if we all agree and say the world would be a lot better if we all did this, I mean, it doesn't matter, it's not like as if it's just that one face says this, the other face says this, When it comes to the core tenets of morality, for the most part, everybody says we should all do these things. If you just took all of the things that everybody agreed on and said we should do this, wouldn't the world be a better place? No more murder, no more lying, no more deceit, no more not holding promises. I mean, none of that. But yet, we all know we don't do those things. Why is it that we know the good we ought to do, yet we still don't do it? At some point you have to look at it and say there's there has to be some gravitational pull or power that is associated with sin that just pulls us in and makes us want to do things we shouldn't do. And then beyond that, the other thing about sin we looked at last week is we're far more sinful than we ever thought. Uh, when you We looked last week at the Sermon on the Mount. that the, Sort of the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount or the premise of the Sermon on the Mount is you're nowhere near as good as you thought you were. Like, for instance, most people say, well, good people go to heaven, bad people don't, and you ask somebody how good do you think you are, everybody pretty much says, well, I'm a pretty good person. And Jesus comes in and he says, no, no, you're not. As a matter of fact, and he begins to show just how not good you really are. Like, we think that we're a good person, but we never killed nobody. That's usually the number one thing people cite, well, never killed nobody. But he comes back, he says, if you ever just wanted somebody to not exist, then you're just as, it's just as bad as murder, just as big of a dealer's as murder. And so Paul is picking up on this same thought that Jesus had on the Sermon on the Mount over in the book of Romans. Because if you really want to understand most core tenets of theology, they're usually going to be found, described, and explained in the book of Romans. Grace is one of those central themes in the book of Romans. And so when you get to chapter 5, he's talking a lot about grace. And so in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, he says this, The law was brought in so that the trespass may increase but where sin increased grace increased all the more. It's one of those passages I wish that the translators wouldn't just give you the word for word rendering because the word for word rendering is sometimes confusing. Does that make sense? You ever wish like then you ever had those moments where then the pastor will explain what is meant and you go why didn't they just put that? Because if you do, what if you're wrong in your interpretation? That's the issue. And so some translations actually do that, but sometimes they may get it wrong here or there. So oftentimes the translation just put it out like it is. So what does he mean when he says the law was brought in so the trespass may increase? It's not that the law caused people to sin more, which is what it sounds like it's saying. Rather, what it is is you didn't know what sin was until you knew what the law was. You didn't realize how bad you were until you realized just really what the standard was. Let me put it this way. Uh, When I was growing up, starting in about seventh grade, my mom was a realtor and a property manager, so I started doing home repairs and fix-ups and whatnot. Uh, Oftentimes, tenants would damage a place, and your security deposit would then pay me, and I would go in and fix it. So do drywall work, whatever. Uh, Sometimes when homes were being sold, you ever had that home inspection list of the things that have to get done for the house to be sold? Sometimes I was the guy who came over and did them. There in eighth grade, I'd be riding my bicycle over to the place that you're about to buy, and I would be fixing up your half a million dollar home. I wouldn't do major stuff. Back then I was just fixing fences and doing small little wood repair, something that was rotten, like a rotten piece of wood. I would do that kind of thing, and I would go do that. Well, that then led to doing home renovations and remodeling, and it got to the point where my dream one day was to build my own house. And so a couple years ago, I did just that. And I was very meticulous with it. After all, I was thinking this is the house I'm living in, not you, and I want to make sure this thing is perfect, right? So I'd done a lot of this work all my life. There's a different level of work when you're doing regular home renovations versus building. Because when you build, they have these things called home inspectors. Not like the one you get when you buy a house. I'm talking like the ones the city sends out. And they use things called code books. (laughs) And I thought I knew what I was doing. And now on a lot of the inspections, I did pretty well. When it came to electrical, though, I thought I knew how to do it. I had done a lot of electrical work. And I'd even subbed out the panel work, so I wouldn't have to worry about that. The rest of the stuff I figured I could do myself. I even had a couple of friends who had built houses in the past, helped me with it. I thought I was gonna nail that inspection. Failed. Actually, it got to the point where there were so many things, he goes, you're just gonna have to take notes because I'm not writing all this down on the sheet. <laughs> That's not a good sign. So I make all these notes. I go back and I do it and I'm all excited. I'm like proud like like the kid who just redid his term paper and shows it to the teacher and sure enough, over half of them not right. Still, there were still little things. Just, and I was like, "You're nitpicking on everything." He's like, "No, this is not code. Your house needs to be to code." Fine. It took me like three or four rounds to get the electrical thing, the, the rough electrical passed. Now, I realized though just how little I th- knew compared to what I thought I knew. In other words, I thought I was pretty good at electrical, but I realized I wasn't this good. I was I was down here on it. Now. But now that I know a lot of the code, I'm one of those annoying guys who will show up at your little home project and go, nope, that's not allowed, that's not code, you're not allowed to do that, you're not allowed to do that. And I'm that nitpicky inspector now who comes to your house and makes fun of everything you're doing because I know how it's supposed to be done. But that's the point, he says, the law came in not to make you do worse things, but rather to expose all the things you were already doing that weren't being done right in the first place. You don't realize just how bad you are until somebody comes in with a code book. Or for instance, maybe another illustration if you can't identify with that one. Uh, I'd never used one of these before, but when I got married, my wife had one of these things. It was this mirror, this little round, concave mirror thing. You know what those things do? If you look into them, no matter how good your complexion is, you will look into them and you will see holes in your face that will make you wonder how you're not leaking fluids every day because of how big they are, right? I mean, you literally look like you are the, the face, your face looks like the surface of the moon when you look at it. one of these things. And if that's not bad enough, she goes, oh, here, oh, here, 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 here. And then she flips a switch and a light comes on. No, 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 I don't ever want to see that again. I am just as happy standing back here going, all right, looks good to me. No, that's why they sell you all so much makeup because they make you think your face looks worse than it does. Like, oh, you think you look good? How about now? <laughs> well, here, we can use, it's called a concealer. It'll just, don't ask me how I know these things. Um, <laughs> moving on to the next illustration. Similar kind of thing. Uh, for years, I you know, would preach on Sunday mornings and whatnot. It wasn't until a few years ago that we moved into doing video. Somebody once asked me, they said, so what made you shave your head? You just—you know, What made you go for the new look? I said, video. I didn't know how I looked. I didn't. I'd only seen myself from the front. I've said this before. And one day, you know, I was watching video. I, last time I had a video of myself preaching was when I was in seminary and they filmed us preaching, and it was with this old VHS camera, static shot from the very back of the room, you know, grainy photo, whatever. Well, I went like this one time on video, and it's funny the words we use. I thought, I knew that I, that I was thinning a little, right? <laughs> thinning was the word I would use, and I knew I had a little thinning spot back here. I didn't realize it was bald. <laughs> Worse, I didn't realize that like this part was connecting with this part. I don't know if you can see it on there. You know what I'm talking about? Like Where the, where the pieces are connecting back and it's almost starting to go. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like, nope, we're shaving it off. Uh-uh. Nope, 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 nope. It is time to go. Because I've looked at other people and it's like, dude, man, just give it up, man. You ain't winning this battle anymore. Just, Just, just shave it off. Be bold. I could now see me as others saw me and I realized exactly what it looked like. The point is this, is that when you can see yourself as you truly are, and the law is one of those things that comes in to say, this is how it ought to be. This is who you really are when you look at the standard of what you think you're doing versus what you really are doing, what you think you have become or what you think you are look like, and this is what you really look like, and here's what the standard is, you begin to realize, I'm not nearly as good as I thought I was. And so what he's saying is the law was added. In other words, God came in, and there's like 613 of them, right? That's why most people who say they're a pretty good person, the reason why they say it is because they never read the Bible. That's it. I've even had some people say, I don't want to go to church and find out what I'm doing wrong. Interesting way to view church. I hope that's not how you feel when you come in. But the idea is, is that once you begin to realize what the standard of perfection is and how far away from it is you are, you realize just how unholy, unrighteous, and sinful you truly are. He says, no. He says, the law was added, so you might realize just how sinful you are. He says, but when you realize just how sinful you are, you realize just how much grace God's really given you. You see, whenever we talk about, you know, has, you know God, we, if, I, if I were to say to you, God's forgiven you of every sin you've ever committed, you'd be like, oh, praise God, praise Jesus. And when you think about that, what do you think of? You think of probably five or six biggies in your life, right? That's a typical person, like five, six, maybe maybe ten big things that you've done that God's forgiven you for. In reality, how much he's actually forgiven you for? Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of sins. I mean, just imagine if God were just to list them all out. I've shared before, this happened to me once in court. Um, I was there because... Uh, I'd been invited, I'm use, use, use my thesaurus this morning, I'd been invited to come and talk about my driving <laughs> as in comparison to the guidebook on how things were to be done. And what had happened was that uh, the kind person said that I should go get some more education if I didn't want uh, to have problems or fees associated with my reason for being there, and so I did. I went to do a driver's education course because I want to be a more informed driver. Obviously, that was my only motivation. And I came back in to show that I had been more informed as a driver so we might expunge everything and my whole reason for being there would be as though it never happened. And there was a different judge that day. And he's like, what is this? He goes, what was your name again? He looks at my name and he pulled up my thing. And this was the most disheartening thing ever. I watched him with his mouse scroll, looking at my record of driving over the years. It's never a good thing when everybody's, anybody's looking at your record and they scroll, right? That's, you want everything you've ever done to be on one screen. Like when I think about everything I've ever done before God, I think it's on one screen. How long is God going to be scrolling through your record of sins, right? Well, he starts scrolling and it brings up Georgia and brings up Alabama and brings up Florida and brings up everywhere I have ever lived or been, and also had conversations about the accuracy of my driving, if you will. And he goes, whoa, who allowed you to do this? And I said, oh, Judge So-and-so. He goes, he's down in courtroom something, something. You'll have to go get this from him because I'm not approving it. No, he obviously didn't have a lot of grace. Um, <laughs> I can tell you I was all the more grateful to go find the other judge who was so full of grace that he was willing to overlook many transgressions and offer me this kindness, if you will. And that's the other thing about it, is he's saying you know, where your sin increases, when you realize just how sinful you are, you realize just how much God's really forgiven you for. And what he's saying is is also in the same breath, he's also saying, and it doesn't matter how much you've done. It doesn't matter if You know, you may think, well, at least I'm not as bad as everybody else. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter if your sin list is 100 or 100,000 or a million, he'll forgive it all. That's how amazing grace is. Now, the problem, though, with us is the second we begin to understand grace, this is why grace is kind of a conundrum, because the second you begin to understand just how amazing and incredible and thorough grace really is, that no matter how much you've sinned, God will forgive it. And no matter how much you will sin in the future, God will forgive it. One minute your mind's going, whoa. Then the next minute you go, hmm. Did you say, no matter how much I sin, He'll forgive? And this is where we get back to Ron and Leslie. Because how many times have you heard that before? It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. What are we saying? That is a presumption of grace that the person that we will be disappointing with our action or the rule that we will be violating with our action, the person who's called to enforce it, will very likely show us grace and forgive us for having done it, or the, what's, what are they going to do? Fire me? You know, what are they going to do? Reprimand me? Ah, I don't care. It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. We view that as a way to get things done. What we're basically saying is we would, once we begin to understand that wherever there is grace being shown in this world, we're going to abuse it. Is that know what we say? Because we don't, we don't live in Graceland. And whenever somebody does show grace, we abuse their grace. Or take this. When you declare bankruptcy, they forgive your debts, correct? I mean, other than student loans, but that even maybe I don't want to get into the politics of student loans. But let's just go for for the sake of argument this morning. Uh, all your debts are wiped clean. So no matter how much is on your credit card, boom, back to zero. You owe nothing after bankruptcy. Hmm, you mean to tell me that it doesn't matter if my credit card bill is 10000 or $20,000, it will all go back to zero? Hmm. What I'm about to say next is technically fraud, but you know people do it all the time. What do they do? Well, why go into bankruptcy court with $12,000 of credit card debt? I can go on a spending spree. I can stock up my freezer. As a matter of fact, I can get a new freezer. I can buy whatever I want for the next couple months. And then, in about three months from now, once I've doubled my credit card bill, then I'll declare bankruptcy because, after all, it doesn't matter how much. It's all going to be forgiven. Now, I know you would never think that. Other people out there who don't go to church think that way. But come on, that is how we think that is how our sinful, sinister mind thinks. After all, why not? Or someone would look at it this way. Which is better, a lot of grace or a little grace? Anybody? What's better, a lot of grace or a little grace? Would you rather have a lot of grace or a little grace? Some of y'all are like, I know there's a trick here. I know there's a catch. I don't want to commit because I know there's a catch. No, honest, flat out. What would you rather have, a lot of grace or just a little grace? A lot of grace, right? So you mean to tell me I can create a lot more grace by sinning a lot more? Well, let me help God out. I can just create a lot more grace because everybody wants a lot more grace. Remember on Easter I showed that clip from Trading Places with Billy Ray Valentine and he breaks a vase and they're like, oh, well, you know, actually we insured that for more than what we paid for it so you actually just made us money. And what does he say right back after that? Want me to break something else? No, no, no. I don't want you to go break something else. And that's exactly where people go next in this passage. right? At, this is 2,000 years ago. Paul already knows how you're going to think. Right after he says, where well, your sin increases, grace increases all the more. He knows what you're thinking. He knows where you're going to go. So what are you going to say then? Should we sin all the more? No. Heavens, no. Goodness gracious, no. No, 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 no. One of the reasons why we think that when it comes to sin is because the way that we've been taught salvation, at least the way I was taught salvation growing up, and the way that I was taught theology in seminary was through a legal metaphor, if you will. And there is some, some judicial language used throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, Paul uses a lot of judicial language. And the idea is simply this, that when we've sinned, uh, that is breaking God's law, And that therefore makes us guilty. And the penalty for breaking God's law is eternal death. In other words, hell, if you will. And Jesus is like our... Jesus, it says in Scripture, is our mediator. He's like our, ju- our, like our lawyer that comes in, and God is on the throne as a judge, and Jesus comes in and is our sort of counsel on our behalf between us and God, and he sort of argues our case before God, but yet still the, the verdict comes down that we are, in fact, guilty of sin. But at that point, Jesus not only goes from being our advocate, our lawyer before God, he then also then turns to God and says, God, I will pay their penalty. In other words, if the fine for what you did wrong was a million dollars, Jesus says, I'll cover that. If the fine was $10 million, Jesus steps in and says, I'll cover that. If the fine is life in prison, he says, I'll serve the time for them. If the fine is a death sentence, which it was, Jesus steps in and says, I will pay for that. And that's why Jesus dies on the cross. He's stepping in to pay for the penalty that we incurred by breaking the law of sin. And he does that for us. And in a legal framework, And if you only think of salvation, in other words, your relationship with God in terms of a legal framework, it's going to lead you ultimately to think, well, it's all covered, right? Just like the bankruptcy court, it's all covered. So it doesn't matter what I do. Well, here's why I don't say every week, this life is about nothing more than judiciously getting your sins forgiven before the ultimate trial God, God. You know why I don't say that? Because if that's the way you believed and that's the way you thought only in in terms of a judicial, legal metaphor, you would come to the conclusion that it really doesn't matter what I do. Instead, I explain to you that this life is about nothing more than having a loving relationship with God and joy for all eternity. Let me explain it to you this way. Uh, Back in Florida, I was in a counseling situation uh, where the woman had cheated on her husband multiple times and in the course of talking with both of them, uh, she said, I said, well, what happened when You know he found out and she says well you know after some time eventually she gets to the point where she says he just told me that he forgave me and that he was committed to our marriage and even if i were to do it again or a hundred times over he would never leave me but he would always love me and i was like wow she's like yeah i said so but then you went and did it again like why she's like well i figured if he's going to forgive me what difference does it make Isn't it funny the way you think differently about that in a relationship than we thought when we were talking about bankruptcy in a legal term? It's the same concept, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to forgive me anyway, what difference does it make? In a legal term, we feel like as if we're getting one over on the system. But in the relational sense, every one of us just instantly condemned this person, right? Like, oh, no. What kind of cold, callous, heart would do that? We would. When we don't understand what our sin costs God. Right? When we begin to realize this life is about a loving relationship with God, the question is, why would you want to? I mean, it only, would you say, would it be accurate to say, this woman does not understand what love is? Would it be accurate to say that she doesn't understand what marriage is, what commitment is, what the relationship is? Would that be a fair statement? Would it be fair to say that she has no clue what her sin cost her husband? Is that a fair assessment? She has no concept of the price that he paid. It's sort of like when somebody comes in and says, yeah, that clicking noise you had, it was your timing belt uh, had an issue, and it created a little bit of damage in there. Don't worry, I fixed it for you. Oh, thanks. All right, so is it ready to work? Yeah, okay, good. Anybody know what it takes to fix a timing belt in a car? Some of you who are groaning either have paid for one or have done it yourself, not a few people do it yourself because it's a lot of work. To flippantly just say, oh, okay. Fails to grasp how great of a payment that was just made on your behalf. And to flippantly act like as if it's no big deal is to overlook the grace. It's not just amazing grace, but it is precious grace. It is loving grace. It is a relational grace. And Paul kind of goes through a whole long thing here in Romans 6, and he summarizes it up with this point at the very end. He says, but what benefit did you even reap at the time that you were doing all those things that you're now ashamed of? He's kind of come back from another angle. He's saying, listen, you know, relationally, that's jacked up. But on top of that, why would you want to keep doing all that stuff? Like, what did you get out of it anyway? I mean, what good was all of that stuff anyway? All of that stuff all led to destruction. All sin kills. It's going to kill a relationship. It's going to kill the way you think. It's going to kill your body. Sin is destructive by its nature. Why would you want to keep on doing that? It's like I was at the dentist, and I've got an amazing dentist. She's phenomenal. Um, and I never had any cavity problems till later on in life. Then all of a sudden, I guess, I don't know, I think it's just body chemistry. We'll go with that. I wouldn't do anything wrong, right? Uh, so it's, I'm sure it's just body chemistry and aging was the reason why I was having all these cavities. And the thing was, she is such an amazing dentist. Uh, I don't even need any Novocaine with it. She is able to like, do the cavity drilling without hitting a nerve. And so I can just sit there and she can do it. And it's, you know, I just put on the earbuds. I don't, it blocks out the sound. I don't hear anything. I don't feel anything. It's amazing. And so I've had like, I don't know, several cavities. I won't say how many, but I've had several cavities. Because she's so good at it, right? Like when she says like, you need a cavity, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Want to go ahead and do it? Because it's, it's, it doesn't hurt. She's amazing with it. Well, one day she works. She's in practice with her father. So her father um, saw me today because she was out, and so he's looking at my mouth and he saw how many cavities I have. I'm scrolling again, Um, and he asked me about the things that I drink. And I I was back when I drank a lot of Coke, and then now I drink tea. Either one of them, you're supposed to be drinking for the health of your teeth. So we're talking about that, and he's giving me these lectures about what I'm drinking and what I'm putting in my mouth and stuff, and. He's like, oh, this is not good for you. You're going to get more cavities. I said, quite frankly, I'll be honest with you, your daughter is so good at filling the cavities, I really don't care anymore. (laughs) I'm complimenting him. I'm giving his daughter the highest compliment, right? And you know what he did? He goes, (laughs) it's as if to say, Steve, if you don't care about your health, I'm not going to either. And God's looking at you like, why would you do this to your body? Why would you do this to your life? Why would you do this to your relationships? Regardless of your relationship with God, that's a huge thing in and of itself. But beyond that, what benefit are you getting out of this? In reading through on this topic, I came across a list. um, The title list was 35 Reasons Not to Sin. Uh, A guy named Jim Eliff wrote, I don't know who he is. Uh, I went through and read it and cut it down, so it's not 25, I went down to 25. However, I cut a lot of his out, I think I only left about seven of his, but I'm giving him credit, because that's where I got the idea from. I was kind of going through scripture and experience and whatnot, and came up with a list of 25 reasons not to sin. Uh, Number one, because my sin always makes me less than what I could be. Number two, because sin is a very brief pleasure for an extended cost. Number three, because others, including my family, suffer the consequences due to my sin. Number four, because sin stains my reputation. Number five, because sin and guilt may harm both my mind and body. Number six, because every choice to sin is a path towards more sin and oftentimes more destructive sin. Number seven, because sin is addicting and enslaving. Number eight, because sin impacts the way I think. Number nine, because sin impacts the way I see myself and others. Number ten, because the time spent in sin is time that is forever wasted. Number 11. Because sin means I don't trust God who created me and knows what's best for me. See, I always picture like, remember when Ron, we picture God being like Ron in that clip. That's why I left it in there. I, I enjoy telling them no. It destroys their self-esteem or their motivation or whatever it was. We often picture like that's God. He's this big killjoy in the sky. He doesn't want us to do anything fun. Number 12 because my sin never pleases but always grieves the God who loves me. Number 13, because sin will invite the discipline of God. Number 14, because the supposed benefits of my sin will never outweigh the consequences. Number 15, because sin deceives me into believing that I've gained when really I've lost. Number 16, because I can never really know ahead of time what my sin will cost me. Number 17, because no sin remains hidden forever. Number 18, because my sin may influence others to sin. Number 19, because my sin will keep others from knowing Jesus. Number 20, because sin makes light of the cross upon which Jesus died. Number 21, because sin is stealing my joy and preventing my peace. Number 22, because sin is making the road to where God wants to take me longer than it should. Number 23, because sin makes life harder and more complicated. 24. Because though I will be forgiven, I will review this very sin at the judgment seat one day where every loss and every gain of eternal rewards will be applied. Number 25. Because I promised God that he'd be Lord of my life and that we would have a loving relationship that would last for all eternity. He finishes out this section and he says the wages of sin is death. That's, that's what it costs but the gift of God is eternal life. Finish off with just kind of a summary of this. All of us are living on the mortality side of eternity, right? None of us have entered eternity. That's why we're still here. Eternally, the wages of sin is death. That is true, right? You know, those who sin have no relationship with God, have no judicial transactional forgiveness where Jesus comes in and takes on your debt payment of death people who die that way will face an eternal death apart from God. But is it also fair to say that you've dealt with the consequences of sin on this side of mortality already in your life? That sin has killed some things in your life, relationships, emotions, thought processes, through rationale, you've been numb to things, it's destroyed a lot of things and left a wake of de- death and destruction in its past, in its past, path, path. Is that fair to say too? The wages of sin is death, both now and for all eternity. But the gift of God is eternal life, both now and for all eternity. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, John 10:10. 10, 10. That's what he wants for you. So you mean just because I got grace, I can keep on sinning? Why in God's name would you want to? Really? Really? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that there is grace for us even when we've gone down this path of simply seeing our relationship with you as one that's purely judicial and legalistic. For many of us have committed sin where we've just said, I know, God, you'll forgive me anyway and taken advantage of your grace. And what's so amazing about your grace is your grace is big enough to even cover that But Father, may we begin to see it in a different light about what it costs both you and us and shift our thinking from a legalistic metaphor, Father, to a relationship that we want to enjoy for all eternity. We may live our life in a way that trusts you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.